Welcome to Living Hero. I'm Jari Chevalier, and today we're talking with John Taylor Gatto, author, speaker, filmmaker, and activist. John worked 25 years in New York City public schools, and in 1991, he resigned on the op-ed page of the Wall Street Journal. While still New York State Teacher of the Year, an evening with John Taylor Gatto at Carnegie Hall launched his public speaking career, which has taken him over a million and a half miles in all 50 states and seven foreign countries. Gatto is the author of Dumbing Us Down, The Hidden Curriculum of Compulsory Schooling, The Underground History of American Education, and most recently, Weapons of Mass Instruction. In 1997, he received the Alexis de Tocqueville Award for Contributions to the Cause of Liberty. I'm delighted to share this time with you and John Taylor Gatto. Let us begin by talking about human potential and human nature. Because I noticed right at the beginning of your first book, Dumbing Us Down, you wrote that you were running kind of a laboratory with the kids where you were also a learner, learning about the range of what human possibility is. And it was a place where you could also study what releases and what inhibits human power. So what did you discover in those years of teaching in New York City schools? And what are you thinking now when you say in your new book, Weapons of Mass Instruction, that ultimately how we think about social problems depends on our philosophy of human nature? Okay, now I'm going to have to unpack that question. It's a huge question, and I tend to do that, but I want to just give you a chance to riff on indefinitely on these topics and just take it away. Sure. Well, let me start by saying that I firmly believe that the only thing anyone has to teach of significance is themselves, what they've made of themselves. Everything else is kind of illusory. But the formulation that each of us makes about human beings, whether we make it or whether we inherit it from some pre-made idea, completely controls the way we teach. In a public school setting, of course, people aren't really teachers at all, except either by accident or by some unauthorized design. They're pedagogues. We're all familiar with that word, but none of us stop to think that it was a specialized term for slavery in ancient Rome. The pedagogue, it's true, was in a what looks like a teacher-student relationship, but the pedagogue didn't dare teach anything that he hadn't been instructed to transmit. And in an official sense, that's absolutely true of every public school in the United States. There are some revolutionaries who hide themselves long enough to, to do it a different way. But for the most part, it's a job, and it's not a job that re- rewards thinking. You're handed your script. In fact, in some advanced forms of schooling, right at the moment, the script includes choreography, where you're supposed to stand and 
what emphasis you're supposed to put on certain sentences. That hasn't spread too far yet, but it really is firmly entrenched on both coasts. Uh, so we need to ask ourselves, first of all, what the official outlook on human nature and human potential is, because that's the one that's transmitted to the schooling we're most familiar with. And in a secondary sense, what do we individually think, and does it dispute the official? Well, the official version, and I'm I'm amazed that more of the discussion of institutional schooling doesn't unearth the official version. The official version is either that people are mechanisms or, or that they're like plants or animals in that they're quite predictable if certain habits and attitudes are implanted early enough. Let me try to prove that to you in a way that is a little bit out of the ordinary. There's not a major philosopher in Western history, and I'm not familiar enough with Eastern history, but I'd be willing to venture a guess there's not a major philosopher who hasn't really said that what we think of as education is impossible because people are fixed qualities. Let me run through a few. I'm not sure who you're referring to when I'm you say we. I'm referring now to the official structure of schooling derived from certain major philosophical outlooks that we can trace. And the fact that they're totally consistent with one another, even though they come from different perspectives and ages is certainly chilling. Let me start with Plato, and I'll run through this pretty quickly, but I think it's essential to talk about schooling and first discover where the ideas that shaped this structure came from. So we start with Plato, and everybody who's passed through a college has been exposed to Plato and his republic all over the world, by the way. That's true. I mean, Plato did not allow for the romantic conception of education. You're either born, these metaphorical terms, golden or silver or bronze or copper or lead, and you can't get out of that condition. The difficulty comes that there are relatively few people made of gold, and they've got to worry about all the rest of this inferior metal. So what Plato plans is a form of prison, really, where the minds and the imaginations of the inferior forms are conditioned so that they won't put the gold in peril. Now, if you go from Plato and jump ahead 1,500 years, a little longer than 1,500 years, you come to the most influential theologian 
in European history, John Calvin, and you read his major work, Institutes of the Christian Religion, you will discover that Calvin dismisses the idea of sin and redemption. He said, people are prejudged before they're born. They're stuck into two categories, a tiny category called the saved or the elect, and a huge category called the reprobate or the damned. There's no way out of the damned category, nor is there any way to forfeit your salvation, even if you're a mass murderer. I mean, Calvin was a brilliant lawyer, and he spells out in chilling detail in this enormous book that the real problem of human society is how this tiny group of saved people who can't forfeit their salvation are going to control this large group of damned people. And he suggests a system of schooling. If I say exactly as we have it, I'm not exaggerating. He said, you've got to fill the heads of the damned with nonsense, with half-truth, with illusions of reality, and with a sense that they can save themselves. But it's a lie. It's a good lie, but it's a lie. They can't save themselves. Now, if we go from the depths of philosophy and Plato to the depths of theology and Calvin, and we leap ahead to the depths of the rational mind, not one burdened by philosophy or theology. We are in the hands now of the great Dutch philosopher, Benedict Spinoza. I know you've heard him called Baruch Spinoza, but he never once, not a single time in his life, called himself Baruch Spinoza. So Benedict Spinoza wrote a book in 1690. Everyone studies his ethics in college, but in 1690, I guess about 20 years after the ethics, he wrote a book called The Tractate of Religion and Politics. And in that book, which was heavily uh, influential all over Europe and in the United States, he said that a huge fraction of the population, about 95%, are murderously irrational. And there's no way to cure that. They're stuck with it. So what the 5% or so who can think clearly have to worry about is what they're going to do outnumbered, uh, you know, 19 to 1. And what Spinoza does is exactly what Calvin does, although Spinoza is coming from a clear-thinking, rational point of view. He says you've got to set up forced schooling, and in that for schooling, now ruin is my term, you've got to ruin their minds with lies and half-truths. You've got to set them against one another competing for petty prizes. Uh, and, and you've got to use school as a secular religion to destroy 
uh, formal religions because those are irredeemably irrational too. You're listening to Living Hero at livinghero.com. I'm Jari Chevalier, and we're hearing today from author, scholar, lecturer, and former New York State Teacher of the Year, John Gatto. I know it's jump ahead, 120, we're getting up to our own day, 125 years in history to Prussia, the little military state in the north of what today is Germany. So Prussia was a small population by 1820 or so, had become the fourth wealthiest nation in the world. It had this irresistible army that that in fact destroyed Napoleon at Waterloo and Prussia was the first place in world history ever to set up successful universal forced schooling and why did they do this well we don't have to speculate we have to pick up a copy of a book that will be in every big library in the United States called Addresses to the German Nation written by a fellow named Johann Fichte who was the head of the philosophy department at the University of Berlin would you spell his last name please C-H-T-E And the University of Berlin was not just any old university in 1810 or 1820. It was one of the very few places on the planet, none of them in the United States or England, where you could obtain a Ph.D. degree. Let that sink in just for a moment. People from wealthy families, men from all over the world came to Prussia to acquire a Ph.D. degree, and then they returned, say, to the United States, and they became the president of every major college, the head of every government department. So this tiny little uh, factory over in northern Germany at the University of Berlin and maybe a half a dozen other places imposed a philosophical point of view that was multiplied uh, universally. I mean, Japan changed its constitution, translating the Prussian constitution into Japanese in 1868. This is how ideas spread, but were never really let in on, on this secret. So what went on? at the University of Berlin and in Germany's for schooling. Well, Fichte made demands, public demands, by the way, on the Prussian king. He said, the time has come to destroy the imagination of ordinary people because it gets in the way. It makes them obstreperous. So we're going to destroy their imagination and we're going to convert them from sovereign spirits into flesh and blood robots. Now, that's my term, but I would defy anybody who reads what Fichte said to come to any other interpretation. The whole point of the first successful 
universal schooling system was to ruin the ordinary people. That had been Calvin's position, that had been Spinoza's position, that had been Plato's position, and now we're up to 1810 to 20 in that decade. That was the Prussian position. Delegations came from all over the world. From the United States came none other than Horace Mann to study what the Prussians were doing. And in 1843, Mann returned to Massachusetts and demanded publicly that Massachusetts follow the Prussian pattern. And you and I know what that pattern was intended to do. Inside of the next 50 years, every American state, one after another, fell to the Prussian system. Not that mothers and fathers were let in on where the template had come from or what its purpose was. John D. Rockefeller and Andrew Carnegie joined together in, I'll say, an unholy bond, but they thought it was perfectly rational. They joined together and set up an association to make sure that Prussian schooling not only was spread through the lower schools of the United States, but was spread through the colleges and uh, a number of extremely wealthy individuals, the Vanderbilts, the Astors, the Goulds, etc., joined them in this effort which was totally successful. Now comes the big shocker. Instead of Rockefeller and Carnegie employing this chain of philosophical thinking from Plato or theological thinking from Calvin, they were too shrewd for that. They made their argument based on science. Let's underline that and put it in quotation marks. Because none other than the most prominent scientist in the world, Charles Darwin, an exceedingly wealthy man, had written in his second major book. I mean, he wrote about 40 books, but only two of them remain in American libraries. Everyone knows Origin of Species. That wasn't the important idea. What's sold in public schooling is the important idea. The idea that forms give way to one another is as old as Aristotle. I mean, it was a fairly common idea before Darwin. But Darwin's second book, Descent of Man, introduced... Uh, just a dynamite concept that has really uh, powerfully influenced history ever since. In 1871, Darwin published The Scent of Man. Once again, I'll tell you, it will be in every library of any substance in the United States and in the world. And in The Scent of Man, Darwin said that the majority of the population was so biologically degraded that it was not evolving. I mean, this is, he's talking about 90% or 95% of the population is not evolving. For example, the Irish 
Not a single Irisher is evolving. They're doomed, biologically, of course. But he said, if the biological trash, and trash is my term, not his, but he may as well said trash, crossbreeds with the good stuff, which, as you might suspect, are all those blonde-haired, blue-eyed people from Scandinavia, etc., evolution will march backwards into the swirling mists of the dawnless past. I mean, we're talking about an emergency, but not an emergency that the trash is made aware of. An emergency talked about in gentlemen's clubs and in, you know, royal drawing rooms all over Europe, the United States, and the truth is, all over Asia, too. Eugenics. What emerges almost immediately from Darwin's pronouncement are societies of important people dedicated to find some way to protect the good stuff from the bad stuff. What we get after uh, Descent of Man is almost the entire private boarding school movement. There had been maybe a dozen of these places in the United States and Europe prior to Darwin. Afterwards, the number was multiplied by hundreds, and if we include the fake places, by thousands. So the whole private school movement, underwritten, if you do a little research, by the most important industrialists around, each one picked a particular private boarding school to endow. Now we have this two-tier system, but the largest part of the tier, the public school people, are utterly unaware of the motives and intent of the architects of their part of the system. And what I hope I've done in this short disquisition is to turn the rock over. You're listening to Living Hero at livinghero.com. I'm Jari Chevalier, and today we're talking with author of Dumbing Us Down and Weapons of Mass Instruction, John Gatto. See, once you're aware of this principle, Jari, then all of the anomalies that have bothered intelligent people about school, I mean, why do we do this when it clearly doesn't work? Why do we get standardized tests when no one has ever been able to show a correlation between scores on those tests and success in any kind of profession at all? Why do we do these things? Well, now you know that it really doesn't matter what we do in public schooling because what we're doing is protecting the good stuff from the bad stuff. Wow. Well, that was an incredible short course in what is really behind this compulsory schooling situation that really does not make sense to thinking people. And I appreciate that. And as you know, John, I have a long list of meaty questions for you and we have just a short time, so I'm... I'll be shorter. I'm looking... No, no, it's really great what you gave us. It is essential. What is it that you did learn in your teaching and in your research 
what do you think is the truth of human nature, contrary to the philosophies of these so-called elite gentlemen? Well, I had the good fortune in 30 years in the classroom to be placed both with the elites of the Upper West Side of Manhattan and with the dregs of Harlem and Spanish Harlem in almost equal measure. And well, I must say, the former group was a lot less efforty to be with. The latter group ended up being fantastically more imaginative and creative. And slowly I came to see that there was hardly a difference other than what had been implanted by early training. And the funny thing is, Jari, that in the middle of reluctantly learning this lesson, that a kid from a single-parent family in a Harlem slum apartment was as capable of thinking deeply and philosophically as the doctor's son or daughter from West 76th Street, in the middle of doing that, I read Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations, you know, the Bible of Capitalism, and I was astounded to discover, as any of your listeners will be if they pick it up, that in the very first few pages of Wealth of Nations, Adam Smith says there's no difference between a street sweeper's son and a duke's son, except early training. He said each one of them is capable of being anything until the elements of mental growth are removed from the street sweeper's son. Isn't that stunning? Let me tell you, I have a lot of friends who think of Wealth of Nations as a kind of sacred, secular text. And when I say, you know, you talk about this book, but you never mention that Adam Smith said that we mutilate deliberately the majority of the population in order to have them do our bidding. You never mention that. That's not in the book I've told. And I said, well, go back and read, because it's pretty clearly the first thing on his mind is the mutilation that comes from working in factories or doing any sort of routine work, the mental mutilation that follows inevitably, and the cowardice that follows inevitably. So that these ideas you and I are talking about here, which probably seem a little bit out of bounds for some of your listeners, were really quite commonplace on the upper reaches of society for hundreds of years or thousands of years. Do you think that there is a way out of this? It seems that this dominant structure has been at work for such a long time and the architects and engineers have really quite successfully had their way with things can we look at the possibility of solutions and where you really think we're at? First, we have to define the problem clearly. I'd love to have you do that. It's a half course in definition. 
But what would naturally arise from the discussion we've had so far is an idea that there are bad people oppressing the rest of us, a sort of a Marxist idea. And to do that would really mislead you from the nuances of this problem, which are titanic. And the nuances are this. In the type of economy that we've evolved over the last few hundred years, and which is emerging quite successfully in China right now, in that type of economy, there are two structural weaknesses, and unless these weaknesses can be dealt with, everything falls apart. The first weakness is that if my hypothesis is correct, that talent and ability is quite widely distributed, uh, maybe universally distributed, then producing things or producing services that are useful to other people is within the range of everyone. And oddly enough, if you look at late colonial America and the early federal America up to the Civil War, people would come out of the most unlikely backgrounds, like Lincoln, but there are just thousands of them, and they would invent something or correct a procedure, and they would go from, you know, as low as you can get to having some mighty fortune and power. The difficulty is if everybody realizes that that can be done, a situation emerges that economists used to call overproduction and which is now referred to as overcapacity. The, the trick in capitalism is to assemble from investors enough capital to do something. But these people are unlikely to let you have their savings if they think that some surprise development can occur overnight that will wipe you out or make you uncompetitive. And that happened all through the 19th century. These panics you read about were caused by the fact, I'll be a little bit romantic here, but not much, that American common citizens could do anything and thought they could do anything. So if they went to work for, for you, you could count on this. They were studying how you did your business, and you'd blink your eyes, they'd be opened across the street with your business, except with an improved uh, aspect to it. This couldn't be allowed to continue because it turned social classes upside down. That's how we got a, a really a woodsman like Andy Jackson as the president with his rude friends and their muddy boots in the White House. I mean, the best people couldn't have the social order turned upside down this way, and it would be if everyone were taught to be a sovereign human being and encouraged to produce. The hierarchy would be destroyed. Correct. And let, now let's say that in the most gentle way that will give the other side the respect it's due, they were willing to trade 
fairness, what might be called social justice today, they were willing to trade it for stability because in their reading of history and in their reading of human nature, the kinds of disruption that are possible if there isn't a social order in place are frightening. And a lot of them were decent people who simply said the trade has to be made. Andrew Carnegie said that. He said setting up these boards of licensing, this is Carnegie speaking now, he said, we'll guarantee that the best people won't become doctors and lawyers and architects. They'll be the second or third best people. But we're going to have to sacrifice quality for stability here. You know, the beautiful thing, Jari, is that if you go back and actually read into the literature at the moment these things were being debated or happening, people are extremely candid about what they're doing and what function they hope to uh, provide. So the second huge problem that's built into capitalism, first is overproduction. You've got to stop it, even though that would produce the lowest prices, just as Adam Smith said, that will produce the lowest prices and the best quality for everybody to allow anyone who wants to produce to produce. The other problem is known as hyper-democracy, and that's a term which you'll never see used in the press, but in the debates of the managerial classes, let's call them, it comes up regularly. If anyone wants to go into the nuances of hyper-democracy, they want to pick up a book published in 1975 by New York University Press called The Crisis of Democracy, and they will be surprised and amused, I hope, at the same time they're horrified, to learn that the problem of democracy is that if it's real, and not just symbolic, that the social order gets turned on its head anyway. And there's no way to predict what the collective population will decide to do and what apple carts they'll decide to upset. Obviously, we elected President Obama. Now, I'll be, again, metaphorical here to nationalize the banks. The banks have ruined us, and they've ruined us not once, but continually through the 20th century. And instead of having that done, we see that the future's been mortgaged. Trillions of dollars have been handed to the people who caused the mess in the first place, as if somehow or other they've learned their lesson and won't cause the mess again. I mean, this is really its not an intractable problem, but it's so complex that unless normal people learn how to think this way, there is no leadership that you can turn over your private voice to that will represent your interests. Maybe at the beginning... But the bribes, the considerations offered to join the club seem to have proved 
overwhelming to President Obama. Well, you say the bribes, but I always get the feeling that at a certain point, these elected officials get a visit, if you know what I mean. So how do they get a visit? But instead of saying, here's a sack of money for you, what you say is, we're having a a little get-together, and we'd just love to have you come and and listen uh, or talk about the way you see things. Or suppose the visit says this. I understand that your son had his heart set on going to Princeton, and he's been turned down. I just happen to have a little bit of influence there, and I think of it as a privilege if I could help you out. You know, there are a lot of ways to do this other than the cartoon ways. Yes, except that I don't think that in the case of Obama, something along the lines of the Princeton would change his mind about nationalizing banks or not. It's necessary in shorthand, and I know you know this, sometimes to simplify the equation, I think he's a genuinely decent and unusual man. But the very fact that the people who elected him were very clear about what they wanted done, change you can believe in, and that he's surrounded by exactly the people that all administrations are surrounded by. How come Ralph Nader's not in his cabinet? You know what I mean. Yes. You know, it doesn't mean that he's venal. It means that he's human. And he may very well think, well, I'll have to concede a certain amount of territory in order to advance in other places I think are more important. I see these people, once again, that conjures up a dark conspiracy. And what I want to conjure up is human nature and the difference between power and people who walk the dog and the baby. I mean, power operates out of a different set of assumptions. Its sophistication has come from gathering the insights of thousands of years of history. Let me give you an example. When I was growing up in a coal mining town in western Pennsylvania, at the time of the Second World War, our schools were filled with classical literature. Let me just name two pieces. In sixth grade, I read in this coal mining town, Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars. And in ninth grade, I had the choice, which I accepted, to read it in Latin. Read Marcus Aurelius's Meditations. Now, if, if I were to toss that out, as part of a solution on the west side of Manhattan, for example, or in Shaker Heights in Cleveland, or you know the places. What I'd hear is we don't have, we can't afford these luxuries. These are poor children, and they have to learn how to fend for themselves in the world. And it would sound as if an elitist, John Gatta, were being put down by pragmatic folks That's right. who only wanted the best for children. Well, let me tell you how in 1945 Caesar was presented to us, not as an ancient Roman, 
but as a strategist, studied intensely at West Point because he discovered a way to beat superior armies with an inferior force by dividing and conquering those armies and that Caesar's Gallic Wars was a classic workshop in how to do that. Now, we were coal miners kids, steel workers kids, but we understood immediately that this was serious business that affected our own lives. Let me tell you how Marcus Aurelius's meditations was presented to us. The teacher said to me and the others, here is something that the wealthiest man in the world, at the same time, the most powerful man in the world, thought in his private moments. That situation will never exist again, likely. And here's an opportunity to peek into his mind and find out how he thinks and what's important. You know, with that kind of an offer, you know, you'd clamor to learn what was there instead of, this is ancient Rome, this was a man who was, a, you know, all that garbage. <laughs> yes. It's a classics are classics because they define important classifications in human life. Not historical classifications, eternal classifications. You know, to have them stricken and replaced by science fiction and Jack London is a crime. I mean, a crime that's committed by millions of perfectly innocent school teachers who just do what they're told. Right. So, given that now we have a populace and as you say, worldwide, ill-equipped to think about ways to get themselves out of this oppressive situation, we do have you to say, what can be done? What can we do to make headway against these enormous powers that be? I'm Jari Chevalier, and you're listening to Living Hero at livinghero.com. I'm talking today with author and activist John Gatto. Well, instead of thinking, and I'm not accusing you of thinking this way, but instead of thinking, as we naturally tend to do, in terms of a system to replace this system, which I believe is quite impossible since this system is an important employer and director of resources into the, quote, right hand, you're not going to create a system except in a utopian sense. What you're going to do is sabotage this system and make little private oases, maybe in your own mind, maybe in your mind and your neighbors, maybe among a, a group of homeschoolers, maybe among a group of Christian private schoolers, maybe among the great academies you're going to create, personal alternatives at the same time your compassion remains alive for the people being devoured in this other system. Think of an America that didn't have a single apple tree and thousands of Johnny Appleseed came along. 
drafting their seeds where they went, yeah. and now they're like weeds all over the country. Uh, we're going to do this brick by brick, stone by stone. We're going to have a long vision, think globally, uh, work locally. The idea speaks for itself. That's what we're going to do. So personally, if you're disturbed by schooling, what you have to do is begin to build a personal alternative. I've spoken at the state homeschool convention in all 50 states. Usually it's the keynote speaker, and I get to sit around and talk to those people. And a lot of them say what common sense would seem to say. Well, I don't know anything that I can teach. That's what worried me at first. But then I came to see that nobody can teach anyone else anything. Education is a matter of taking something for yourself. Other people can help you conceive of targets. But to the extent you turn yourself over to anyone, is a guarantee that you will not emerge educated, you'll emerge schooled. And it's a wonderful transformation, even if it only happens partially. Nothing worth learning is very difficult to learn. I mean, look, the whole computer apparatus of the country has been created by a group of men who deliberately dropped out of college because it was a waste of time. We're talking about Bill Gates, his partner, uh, Paul Allen. We're talking about Steve Jobs, his partner, Steve Wozniak. We're talking about Michael Dell. We're talking about the Oracle guy, Larry Ellison, and everybody else. Look, at age 10 or 11, a whole lot of people have that idea pretty clearly in their their mind. They're sort of fearless. Sir Richard Branson, at the age of four, that's four, that's 48 months, Jory, he was walking miles in strange sections of London with nobody else around. By the age of 12, he was doing a 100-mile round trip bike rides. His mother didn't have a husband. He was grown up in a single mom household. He dropped out of high school, never dreamed of going to college. At the age of 19, had his first successful business. And last year, I saw him on the front page of the New York Times, standing next to his completed spaceship which will probably fly this year or next year. He's charged a quarter of a million dollars a seat, and it's taken 200 people into space. Your point is that everything can be learned, and the information's all out there, and we don't need to be in school for all these years all day. Even if they're the best schools we can think of, we will be less than we would otherwise be. You know, if this were simply some wacky idea by an old school teacher, but it isn't. We had a hundred-year-long test from the late colonial days 
right through the Civil War of what ordinary people could do in an educational sense when the boot of the master was taken off the back of their necks. And what we did was simply make ourselves the strongest, wealthiest country on earth by expert advice. John, would you agree with me then that what is really at stake here, what we're really talking about throughout the entire conversation is freedom? Oh, yes, liberty. Liberty. You know, we hear that the so-called founding fathers cherished it, and I don't think it really resonates with them. Well, I'm, I can buy any flavor of ice cream I want. I can go to any movie I want. I can buy any brand of computer I want. I have liberty. No, you don't. I'm 75 years old, Jari, and from my boyhood to now, I feel like I'm wrapped up like Gulliver with ropes. I feel like I'm suffocating. I feel that way in my life, too. Then, really, one of the things we can each do as individuals is to encourage libertarian thinking wherever, I'm not talking about the political party, wherever we see it begin to emerge. And obviously, if you're a mother or father, you see it emerge in your own children. It's like a miracle. It's like a blasted heat that in the spring starts to throw up green shoots. I mean, the great irony, Jari, is that we're about one or two generations away from utopia, or as utopian a place as human beings are capable of making. Well, that sounds like a whole other conversation, and I hope we will get a chance to talk again soon. There's one parting question I have to ask you. Your book jacket photograph in the new book, why are you wearing two wristwatches? I did that for pretty much all the time I was a public school teacher. From the moment I came to see schooling as a prison of measured time, I wanted to call attention in a mocking fashion to the false imperatives of school time that caused someone who's just beginning to grasp a mathematical concept to obey a bell or a horn or a buzzer and go and think about artistic perspective. And at the moment, he's on the verge of of accepting that as some miracle. Somebody says, no, you've got to go and find out how a bill becomes a law, even though no bill in human history ever became a law the way the textbook said did. So I wanted some visible symbol of my disgust with this prison of measured time that I worked in. Bless you for living with a metaphorical thought right there on your body day after day. It has a lot of teaching right there embedded in it. Those lucky kids who had you in their lives. Thank you very much, Jari. Enjoyed it, John. 